Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Crystal, and I would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Treatment Update on Mantle Cell Lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other blood cancer and, and cancer organizations. And it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 461 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States. Um, and we also have participants from Canada, India, Ireland, New Zealand, Nigeria, and United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well. And um, we're delighted to have all of you on the call. Today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics, Inc. and Janssen Biotech, Inc. Thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Brad Call. And Dr. Call is Professor of Medicine, Director of Lymphoma Program, Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Call is going to present an overview of mantle cell lymphoma, treatment options for newly diagnosed, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Call. Thanks, Carolyn, and uh, welcome everybody on the call today. So, in the next few minutes, I will take you through an overview of mantle cell lymphoma and talk a little bit about treatment options for newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. Mantle cell lymphoma is a subtype of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The term non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, is a very broad term. It's not a specific diagnosis. It's sort of like saying um, automobile or general motors, um, it doesn't really tell you much. So within that category of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, there are uh, many, many, many different kinds of lymphomas. Some of these lymphomas are derived from T cells, more are derived from B cells. Mantle cell lymphoma is lymphoma that arises from B cells or B lymphocytes. Mantle cell lymphoma only makes up about 6% of new non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cases each year, so it's not the most common lymphoma subtype. That does make it a little bit uh, difficult to study at times compared to some of the other more common lymphomas, but uh, despite the uncommon nature of it, uh, investigators from around the world have put in considerable effort to studying mantle cell lymphoma over the past 30 years, and um Happy to say there's been substantial improvement in the recognition of mantle cell lymphoma and in treatment strategies and in outcomes for patients with mantle cell lymphoma. So, as I mentioned, mantle cell lymphoma is a B-cell lymphoma. It comes from a, a B-cell, and um, it has a characteristic uh, abnormality. Uh, um, it's called a chromosomal translocation. It's where a little piece of DNA on one chromosome changes places with the DNA and another uh, piece of chromosome. And in mantle cell lymphoma, it's called the 1114 translocation. And this translocation of DNA results in uh, 
abnormal expression of a particular gene called cyclin D1. So these mantle cell lymphoma cells make too much of this protein and it causes these lymphocytes to grow in an abnormal fashion. And that's really what is the genesis of mantle cell lymphoma. And that abnormality that I just mentioned is true in virtually every case of mantle cell lymphoma. And we actually use that um, those abnormalities to help us make the diagnosis. <clears throat> Making the diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma is actually not terribly difficult anymore with modern technology. It, usually, it requires a biopsy. Um, usually it's done uh, off of a, a lymph node biopsy, but it, the diagnosis can be made off of a, a bone marrow biopsy, or sometimes the diagnosis is even made just in blood work because in some patients the mantle cells will be circulating in the blood. And then the pathologist will do a test for this 1114 translocation or they'll do a different test, which is a staining test for the cyclin D1 protein. And so if the cells look, look the way we expect under the microscope and you have this 1114 translocation or this cyclin D1 protein, then essentially we know we're dealing with mantle cell lymphoma. Now, one of the things about mantle cell lymphoma, I think it's, I think it's more useful to think of this as really a blood cancer. Um, most people with mantle cell lymphoma, <clears throat> if you look hard enough, you will find the disease circulating in the blood. Uh, and it's present in lymph nodes, and it's usually present in the bone marrow as well. And so I try to encourage mantle cell lymphoma patients to not get too focused on their stage. Um, lymphoma staging has sort of the classical stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, like other cancers. And in some other cancers, being stage four is really a terrible thing for the patient and means the prognosis is quite poor. That's not true in mantle cell lymphoma, however. Most patients have stage four disease at diagnosis. Um, those who don't have stage 4 usually have stage 3 disease, and it's very, very uncommon to find stage 1 or stage 2. And the outcomes for patients don't really change a whole lot depending upon the stage. So I really try to minimize the staging in mantle cell lymphoma because that's frankly not the most important, not the most important thing. It has some unique... Um, Clinical features, it's much more common in men compared to women, and we don't really understand why. The average age for mantle cell lymphoma is right around 65, so that means half the patients are going to be older than that and half will be younger. Um, maybe a quarter to a third of patients will come in with some sort of symptom. Um, it could be um, fevers or night sweats or weight loss. Those are so-called B symptoms. They might have pain from enlarging lymph nodes. Uh, but a lot of patients, they just find it incidentally. They notice a lump, uh, an enlarging lymph node in their neck or in their groin or in their armpit, and that's what leads them to medical attention. And then sometimes it's just picked up on routine blood work. Um, so there's a variety of ways that uh, individuals can come to medical attention with, with mantle cell lymphoma. Once the diagnosis is made, then uh, the physician will do what's called the full staging evaluation, and usually that entails some kind of imaging. In the United States, most typically that's a PET, something called a PET scan, P-E-T, PET scan. Uh, a CAT scan is perfectly acceptable as well. <clears throat> uh, that will show the extent of the lymphoma in the lymph nodes and in the spleen. 
usually people will have a bone marrow uh, biopsy done as part of the staging evaluation and then routine blood work. And then some tests to make sure that um, critical organs are working, like the heart function is good in the patient, and the kidney is working well, and the liver is working well, and, and the, all that information is important for the doctor to try to help figure out what's the most appropriate treatment for that, that individual patient. Uh, once all that information is obtained, the, the physician can make some estimates about prognosis for patients. There's this prognostic index called the MIPI, M-I-P-I, so that may be something you want to talk about with your physician, your MIPI score. Um, and another thing that can be done pretty s simply using the diagnostic material from the biopsy is something called a KI67 stain, and that shows the what we call the proliferation rate of the mantle cell lymphoma for that patient. And it's different in everybody. Some patients' mantle cell lymphoma is more proliferative than other patients. Other patients, it's less proliferative, and that has some useful information for the doctor in terms of prognosis and sometimes influences how aggressive the, the doctor wants to be with the treatment. I'm happy to report that the outcomes for a patient with mantle cell lymphoma has really improved over the past um, 20 years. Uh, <clears throat> when I started in this field right around the year 2000, uh, the survival of man mantle cell of the average survival for mantle cell lymphoma was nowhere near what it is now, and so really there's been marked improvement in outcomes, and it's probably for a variety of reasons, um, uh, including uh, the development of better treatments. Rituximab, this uh, drug that's a monoclonal antibody, has been is now a routine part of treatment. We've identified patients who are most appropriate for aggressive treatments. Uh, and then there are new drugs that have come along in the last uh, five, six years uh, that are, seem to be making a, a big impact for people with relapsed mantle cell. So all these things put together have really improved outcomes for patients with mantle cell lymphoma. There, there really isn't a one standard approach to the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma. And I think this can be frustrating to patients at time because you might go around and get different opinions from different physicians and they'll have different strategies for how to how to treat it. <clears throat> and I don't think there is a uniform right or wrong way. I'll give you just some general principles. In general, when we have mantle cell patients who are younger, let's say under age 65, and healthy, Generally, the approach is to be more aggressive with the treatment, so that'll usually involve some form of moderately aggressive chemotherapy, usually involving a drug called cytarabine, given at relatively high doses. So it's modestly difficult chemotherapy that's done for four to six months. And assuming it works and works well, and patients get into some kind of remission, then very often the patients undergo what's called a consolidation procedure with a stem cell transplant. And it's a usually a stem cell transplant using the patient's own stem cells. So that's called an autologous stem cell transplant. And with that approach, using a, a moderately aggressive induction regimen and an autologous stem cell transplant consolidation, nowadays the average length of that first remission appears to be in the seven, eight, nine-year range. Which is, a, which is much better than we used to do in mantle cell lymphoma. So that's been a nice uh, advance in the field. Now for older patients, 
or patients who have um, significant illnesses that might preclude them from receiving such aggressive treatment, then we need different strategies for those people. And there's a variety of, of good and effective treatment strategies that are not quite as aggressive as the stem cell transplant strategy. Examples of treatments that are sometimes used for older mantle cell patients uh, include drugs like bendamustine, which is a chemotherapy drug given with rituximab. Uh, there's a regimen that's used in some parts of the world called VR-CAP. Some uh, centers around the world will use the R-CHOP chemotherapy regimen. And there are some spin-offs of these different regimens that, that produce fairly comparable results. In general, the remissions with these less aggressive approaches don't last quite as long as the more aggressive approaches, but the treatment is certainly substantially easier for those patients to go through these less these less aggressive approaches. And then a lot of times for these older patients, they'll receive maintenance therapy with a drug called rituximab, which is a monoclonal antibody. It's not chemotherapy. It's generally very easy to give, very well tolerated by patients. And often patients will do maintenance rituximab for two years, sometimes even longer, and that will help extend the length of that first remission. And we even... Uh, received data just um, within the past two years that maintenance rituximab after stem cell transplant improves outcomes, and so a lot of our younger patients now are receiving maintenance rituximab after stem cell transplantation. And so with those strategies now, we expect our mantle cell patients, their first remission to last for several years, uh, which is great for patients, and then, um, you know, if and when the disease comes back, and it usually does, um, we, we usually don't think of mantle cell lymphoma as a curable disease. It's treatable, it's manageable, it's controllable, but it typically comes back, so we, we're pretty careful about using the cure word because it does come back in most patients. Then we have a variety of options that are available for patients whose disease has recurred, and Dr. Gopal is going to talk about some of the strategies that we can employ for uh, mantle cell lymphoma in the relapse setting. And then I'll just conclude uh, by commenting on the importance of the um, relationship between the patient and their healthcare team and the importance of communication. You know, the, the doctor-patient relationship is like any other relationship in life, um, and sometimes um, you, you, you fit like a hand in glove with your physician and the communication is real easy. Sometimes it's not a great fit, um, and so it's theoretically possible that um, you might need a different, a different physician or a different healthcare team if you just can't get on the same page communication-wise, and that's okay. Um, I've had patients um, leave me for other physicians. I've had patients come to me from other physicians because they're just trying to find the right fit, someone who thinks the way they do, who speaks in the same kind of terms that they do, and you're just trying to find that great fit for that doctor-patient relationship. But don't be afraid um, to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask hard questions to your um, patient care team. Um, I, I, I like it when patients ask us tough questions because it means they're thinking about it, and it's a lot easier to make uh, joint decisions about how best to treat your disease if the patient is very involved in the discussions and the decision-making. So for me personally, that's, you know, that's the way I like it is when we're making these decisions together. Um, 
with that, I'll, I'll stop and I'll turn it back to Carolyn to introduce Dr. Gopal, and I look forward to taking your questions in a few minutes. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kyle. That was really wonderful. A wonderful um, introduction to the whole program, lots of information about mental cell lymphoma, and, um, and also um, the concluding with the concept of, make, of talking with your doctor and making decisions together. So important. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, um, and our next speaker is Dr. Ajay Gopal. Dr. Gopal is a professor of medicine, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Washington. He's a member of Clinic Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Clinical Research Director and Associate Medical Director, Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And uh, Dr. Gopal is going to be addressing treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, clinical trials and emerging treatment approaches, and quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gopal. Thank you, Dr. Mester, and thank you, Dr. Call, as well. And I also would like to extend my welcome to everyone on the line uh, listening in today and participating in this uh, conference. So I, I really want to start just by uh, echoing uh, what Dr. Call had uh, referenced in that the outcomes for folks with mantle cell lymphoma have dramatically improved uh, over certainly my uh, career uh, uh, taking care of folks with uh, lymphomas and mantle cell lymphoma. And much of that probably has to do with what we do first, but uh, a great uh, contribution has to do with what we can do uh, if the mantle cell lymphoma comes back. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that and some other aspects. So when the mantle cell lymphoma recurs, which, as Dr. Call referenced, uh, patients can get very long remissions, but most of the time, unfortunately, uh, the mantle cell lymphoma will show up again. Uh, it actually has turned into a fairly short conversation now into a very long and complicated uh, decision-making process, in part because we have many options. And some of the factors that one can discuss with their health care provider are what are the really are the goals uh, of care, uh, what uh, kind of symptoms uh, are uh, is the mantle cell lymphoma uh, uh, causing, uh, and also we have the advantage to look at how long of a remission one had from the prior therapy relative to how aggressive the first therapy was. Uh, we expect to get longer emissions out of more aggressive frontline therapies, intensive frontline therapies, and often see shorter emissions after less intensive frontline therapies. So when I'm seeing someone with their first uh, recurrence of mantle cell lymphoma, well, we take these into uh, account. and. The first question really is, uh, do we need to treat immediately? Uh, since we are already aware that someone has this diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma, many times we detect the relapses sooner than when they were first diagnosed. And many times patients don't have uh, many symptoms. It might just be a slightly enlarged lymph node or a few cells that are circulating on the blood count that we see on the blood counts. Um, so we definitely take that into account, and a small subset of patients can probably be observed for a period of time, watched a little more closely uh, as we think through what the next steps should be. 
once we make the decision to treat, um, gratifyingly, there are many options that are available, and many of these options are actually pretty uh, relatively easy to deliver uh, therapies. Many of these are, are oral therapies. Uh, and uh, the challenge, as Dr. Call mentioned, in a rare disease like mantle cell lymphoma, it's difficult to know uh, if one therapy is better than another because it's hard to do trials comparing one therapy to another directly in uh, a rare disease like mantle cell lymphoma. So what we often do is we look at the what our goals are, our immediate goals, what other medical conditions or concerns we may have for a given patient, uh, and choose the therapy uh, that fits with that. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the approved uh, options uh, for uh, relapse mantle cell lymphoma. So first, for folks who have a long remission, particularly if it's after uh, a less aggressive uh, chemotherapy, um, sometimes we can actually go back and give additional chemotherapy. So the, 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 the treatments that were uh, mentioned up front, like bendamustine, for example, that can be effective in the relapse setting, particularly if folks have had a long initial remission. And the potential advantage of a chemotherapy-based approach is that the, it's not continuous therapy, it's intermittent therapy. So you'll be on therapy for a while and then you can be off therapy for a while uh, and hoping for another longer, a long remission, though typically it will be shorter than the prior remission. Uh, there are also other classes of drugs. Uh, there are uh, what we've learned over the years for B-cell lymphomas is that there are certain, I like to describe it to patients as there, there are a variety of on and off switches within the cancerous B-cell. Um, and one of the abnormalities is that these switches are turned on. And one of these switches is something called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. And that tells the cell to grow and proliferate and it, it makes the cell think it's fighting an infection when it's actually uh, really growing um, when, it, when it shouldn't. Uh, so investigators have designed drugs to specifically go and turn off this switch called Bruton's tyrosine kinase, and there are actually two FDA-approved drugs, uh, which are both pills uh, f that are in this class. One is a drug called ibrutinib, which was the original uh, uh, agent, uh, and this is extremely effective uh, for treating mantle cell lymphoma. And relative to chemotherapy, uh, it has, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, a much uh, lower side effect profile, uh, much fewer side effects. The caveat, of course, is that it is continuous therapy, and one continues to take the abrutinib as long as it is working and not causing significant side effects. There is now a second drug in this class called Bruton's tyrosine kinase, a drug called acalabrutinib, and that also has been shown to be uh, extremely effective in treating relapsed uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Um, and again, it's an oral continuous therapy, much uh, lower side effects on a day-to-day -day basis, but is ongoing continuous therapy. So these drugs are taken continuously. There are also data uh, and FDA approval for another oral agent, a drug called lenalidomide. Um, this is uh, uh, 
originally approved for multiple myeloma, which is kind of a cousin uh, B-cell cancer to lymphomas. Uh, and this is another oral agent, um, has a little bit different side effect profile uh, than uh, ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, um, but uh, uh, yet is another option to try to keep the mantle cell lymphoma under control. Uh, uh, there is uh, there are emerging data with a drug that's not approved for mantle cell lymphoma. It's approved for CLL, uh, but there's a drug, another oral drug called venetoclax, uh, which uh, also shows showing some promising uh, activity uh, and efficacy in mantle cell lymphoma, particularly uh, you know, used when drugs like ibrutinib or acalabrutinib stop working. The caveat here is uh, that it is not currently FDA approved for mantle cell lymphoma. Which uh, really brings me to the discussion of clinical trials. Uh, clinical trials, when, when a patient comes into the clinic and asks me, a patient with mantle cell lymphoma asks me why should they be interested in participating in a clinical trial, and I, I say, well, number one, it's a personal decision. There's no right or wrong answer. But many of the agents, all of the agents that we are now uh, uh, touting have improved the outcomes for patients with mantle cell lymphoma were only available in clinical trials before they were FDA approved. And clinical trials do give folks additional treatment options in a disease that is otherwise really very difficult to, uh, nearly impossible to eradicate uh, completely. So I explain it as the appropriate clinical trial will potentially give the options to uh, keep the disease at bay for longer um, and potentially even keep the approved drugs on the shelf that can be used uh, if there are no clinical trial options. So uh, clinical trials give patients access to new uh, promising therapies. So this is an important discussion to have with your uh, provider uh, regarding um, are clinical trials uh, appropriate uh, for you? Um, the other thing I would like to mention is that, well, we often say that mantle cell lymphoma is uh, not curable. Um, there are probably rare circumstances and instances where we think we might be able to eradicate mantle cell lymphoma. Um, and uh, this is really not for everyone. Uh, this is for folks who are probably uh, even younger than the average age, not just under 65, but maybe younger than that, who are fitter uh, and who get their lymphoma into excellent control, I, in other words, a complete remission. Sometimes we think about doing transplants from somebody else called allogeneic transplants. And in the future, uh, we really don't have any data yet, and I'm going to preempt the questions here. Uh, we hope that potentially things like CAR T-cells also might have a curative potential in mantle cell lymphoma. But these are really clinical trial questions at the present time, and uh, we really don't have any data yet, uh, significant data in mantle cell lymphoma. So I'm just going to turn uh, in the... Uh, uh, last uh, few minutes here to talk a little bit about uh, quality of life uh, concerns, and I think uh, this is really where it gets back to that uh, relationship uh, with your uh, physician, um, and it's important to really be open uh, with your physician about what your goals are uh, in context of what your physician is telling you uh, regarding what the expected uh, outcomes would be uh, in the setting of relapse mantle cell lymphoma. Um, and uh, with that in mind, 
You can help dis dis drive therapeutic options, treatment options, uh, something intermittent, being if you're a younger patient and otherwise uh, healthy, uh, could consider going for something uh, very aggressive like an allogeneic transplant, uh, or uh, if someone uh, opts for not doing something aggressive, then uh, continuous therapy with uh, agents like a brutinib or a calibrutinib um, may be appropriate. So it's uh, very important to uh, maintain this um, open discussion and relationship with your uh, provider. Um, and I, particularly in the setting of uh, relapse mantle cell lymphoma, uh, asking whether uh, if you're not being treated by someone who uh, sees lots of this rare lymphoma, asking whether it would be appropriate uh, for a consultation uh, at a, a center uh, or with a provider who sees lots of patients with mantle cell lymphoma to make sure that all the uh, op treatment options are really uh, on the table. So uh, with that, I would, uh, I'm going to conclude my uh, review of uh, treatment uh, and addressing relapse mantle cell lymphoma, clinical trials, and uh, quality of life concerns, and uh, turn the uh, microphone back over to Dr. Uh, Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gopal. That was really outstanding and really covered a lot of important information for everybody. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Um, I'm going to take questions shortly, so if you all want to start, some of you are already posting questions, but if you want to all start thinking about questions you'd like to ask, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care, and then we'll take all your questions. So, um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide uh, free support services to people living with cancer, and what that means is those counseling services, practical and financial assistance, all provided by trained master's level oncology social workers. So we do offer, for example, practical and financial assistance. We do have a copay foundation. Um, and um, we also provide uh, a chance to talk with one of our staff, either on the telephone or online, about concerns you may have in coping with mantle cell lymphoma or any type of cancer or lymphoma. Um, and um, some of those concerns could be, oh, how do I deal with this? How do I cope? How do I tell my friends? Um, how do I tell my boss or my children? So all the kinds of questions that raise through your mind that you just wonder, what am I, how do I handle all these things? Um, and also, um, we do offer support groups. Um, so we have a number of online support groups, actually over 138 online support groups, and they are for both caregivers and for people living with different types of cancers, and so mantle cell lymphoma, other types of lymphomas, other types of cancers, um, for young uh, for young, all different ages, so uh, young, younger people with cancer, middle-aged people with cancer, older people with cancer, um, spouses, partner groups, um, so different types of groups for everybody. So with all of those numbers, there are different groups. And the nice thing about the online groups is that they are, uh, to some extent, they are, um, there's no time frame. You don't have to be somewhere at a certain time. Um, so that you can post something 24 hours a day anytime you want to. And indeed, um, during those postings, um, the group will respond to you and, um, and then the moderator will moderate, the social worker moderating it will moderate it at least once or twice a day. So that's a good thing to know. We also offer telephone support groups as well. Those are at a specific time on many different for different for, for all different types of mental for mental cell lymphoma and other types of cancers as well, 
And again, for those all those different relationships, um, whether one is living with it oneself or a family member, partner, caregiver, um, so that um, those groups have been very helpful. And I think for both of those, it would help people if they don't have to travel somewhere, they don't have to go, especially people who are from all over the um, United States and very rural areas or just having to travel can be very difficult. Um, and we also offer these educational workshops, which are on today, and we have lots of publications, and we also have a website. So, and you can contact us as well. And we'll be sending you, you have received all those numbers anyway. You'll get them again. At the end of the program, you will get an evaluation form, and the evaluation form will include also um, all the resources we mentioned during the program itself. So, with that all being said, we now do have time for questions, and I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and I'm also going to ask Crystal to tell all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of them as possible. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Dennis G. Your line is open. I am 81 years old. I was diagnosed 17 years ago. I've, I've been through pretty much everything and I'm currently on ibrutinib and uh, looking ahead to what possibilities, preferably in a clinical trial where I get the newest and latest. I'm in good physical shape. I walk a mile every day and uh, so I'm wondering what options you would recommend for me? Well, Dennis, thank you. That's a wonderful question, and, and congratulations to you um, all these years and looking into the future in terms of what else is available. So I'm going to ask Dr. Kyle if you could start with that question. It'd be great. Well, there are um, uh, there there are a number of things that are being tested in clinical trials right now. Uh, Dr. Gopal mentioned some of these. For example, um, the um, drug venetoclax, which is this uh, oral agent that inhibits this protein called BCL2. It's proven to be quite effective in mantle cell, and I think there'll be additional studies trying to really test the value of venetoclax in mantle cell lymphoma. There are classes of drugs called bispecific antibodies. So these are kind of like... Um, antibodies that people might be more familiar with, say take rituximab, which will stick to the outside of the cancer cell, and it tries to trick your immune system to come in and fighting the cancer. These bispecific antibodies uh, have two antibodies that are attached together, and so one end will bind the, the mantle cell, and then the second antibody, which is attached to the first, is sort of sticking out in space, and it's trying to literally attract in your T cells, which are part of your immune system, to try to really uh, bring the immune cells right into proximity with the mantle cells. And there's not a lot of experience yet with these bispecific antibodies, but uh, I have a patient right now who has very advanced, difficult-to-treat mantle cell lymphoma, and we put her on a bispecific monoclonal antibody study, and she's having a very nice response. She's about six or eight weeks into the treatment now, so we've been very happy with that. And so there's a whole class of agents that might turn out to be useful in mantle cell lymphoma, and there are a number of bispecific antibodies that are um, that are in development at this time. 
and then we might also turn turn uh, out to develop CAR T cell strategies that are a little bit safer than the current versions without some of the risky side effects. And then if that is the case, we might be able to extend the availability to treatments like that to people that are older than we have historically. So there's, those were just a few of the examples that, that came to mind when, um, when that question came up. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Gopal, do you want to add anything? Or? Yeah, I would concur. I mean, certainly the hope is that the ibrutinib is going to last a very, very long time, uh, which it can last a long time, uh, and you're not going to need anything uh, for a, a good while. Uh, I would I would also echo uh, the, the classes of drugs. The clinical trials are always changing, so I think really at the time – what we say now may not be the most relevant thing at the time that you might need something. And I also say that, yes, we, we've, we certainly have treated folks in the early 80s with CAR T cells here successfully and safely with other B cell cancers, uh, and, uh, but I, optimally, ideally, we'll make them even safer. Excellent. Thank you. Wonderful first question and great answer. Thank you. Um, and we have another telephone question, I think, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Kimberly S. Your line is open. Hi. My question is for Dr. Call. You mentioned that people who undergo the stronger initial chemos followed by the autologous stem cell transplants, that you're seeing um, seven, eight, sometimes even ten years before they go out of remission. Is that true for people that had a high MIPI score and a very high key 67? Hmm. Good question. Well... It is true that people with the high MIPI scores and people with the high KI67 scores are less likely to get those really long remissions. Um, so it's very hard to answer that question for an individual patient because everybody is different. So I can only talk in terms of uh, probabilities, um, but looking at the data, looking at intensive treatments, people that have high-risk MIPI scores and or high KI67 scores are not as likely to get one of those really long first remissions. That is true. And Dr. Gopal, do you want to add anything? Or? Yeah, I would concur. I think it doesn't mean that we don't use that approach, and I certainly have patients in my clinic despite uh, high MIPI scores who have had long remissions and that are still ongoing, but it's less likely. Um, the next question is from one of our online participants um, and for Dr. Um, Gopal. Um, what are the latest theories about why, when, how leukemia non-nodal indolent MCL transforms into aggressive MCL? Um, and person's on, on, on watch and wait right now, but asking that question. It does have deletion of TP53 and 17P lymphocyte count has gone up and the blood, blood counts are normal and no symptoms. So just a general, if you can respond in a general way right. because of course. Right. So this, this is a very important question which uh, we actually don't have all the answers to. Uh, what we, we do uh, feel is that over time there is an increasing number of mutations uh, that build up, and uh, as the uh, mutational load increases, uh, particularly in those that have this TP53 mutation, uh, the cancer can become more aggressive uh, and uh, refractory. 
Um, I've seen other specific genetic abnormalities uh, uh, be, uh, occur in patients with uh, mantle cell lymphoma that's transforming to a more aggressive uh, behavior. But a single cause, uh, we really don't know. Um, I think that we also don't know that there's any data to suggest that, that doing something other than observation, if that's appropriate, changes that. So, uh, you know, I think in general terms, uh, we think there's increasing um, uh, mutations, uh, more genetic abnormalities, but it's not clear that any one strategy over another uh, uh, clearly prevents that from occurring. And Dr. Um, Kyle, do you want to comment as well? Or? I don't really have anything to add to um, Dr. Gopal's answer. I uh, that, I think of it the same way. It's the accumulation of additional genetic abnormalities inside the cancer cells cause outgrowth of these more aggressive clones, and it's it's a it's a common it's common to every cancer, and mantle cell lymphoma is no different. It this can happen over time. Thank you. Um, and our next um, telephone question, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Dan H. Your line is open. And they have removed themselves from the queue, so we'll move on to our next question from Nizan R. Your line is open. Sure. First of all, thank you so much for being a part of this event. My question has to do with my mother, who is was relapsed. Um, she had 11 years for remission. She's elderly, but relatively active and healthy. Are there any benefits to doing a rituxan bendamustine over an abrutinib for her? No, thank you for that question. Um, so I'm going to ask our physicians to address your question in a general way with just some general information for you to have, and then of course, we'll suggest you go back to the treating healthcare team. Um, so, um, Dr. Kyle, um, do you want to start with that one? Well, it's an interesting choice, and it's always good to have options. So, it's um, we like having the problem where we have two good options to choose from. Um, Dr. Gopal mentioned this during his um, presentation. So one of the advantages to doing something like bendamustine rituximab is it's a it's a fixed duration of therapy. It's finite therapy. Um, you do it for maybe four cycles or six cycles, so four to six months, and then treatment ends, and then the patient gets to enjoy that remission free of treatment, and that is usually a good thing for the patient to have these treatment-free intervals. Uh, the bendamustine rituximab is probably a little bit harder to take than abrutinib for those four to six months. Um, on the other hand, um, abrutinib is relatively well tolerated for most patients, uh, but it is a medicine that you have to take daily, every day, and so sometimes there are daily low-grade effects, but they're there every day, and they, then they don't stop after four or six months because the patient needs to stay on the abrutinib. Um, and so then whatever those side effects are, you have to deal with that for for as long as you're on the medicine. So it's literally a trade-off between a fixed duration, more intense therapy like bendamustine rituximab and an indefinite, less intense therapy like abrutinib. So there's definitely not a right or a wrong answer to that question. 
Um, and I think it'll just require a, a thoughtful conversation between the patient and the caregiver about which option to try first. The good news is you can always go from one to the other. So if you have if you start with bendamustine and it proves to be too difficult, you can then switch to ibrutinib. If you start with ibrutinib and the side effects are nagging to the point of intolerability, you could then change to bendamustine or something else. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Gopal, do you have to add to that? Or? No, I would concur. I think that's an excellent uh, summary of this situation. I think fortunately it sounds like she's had a long remission, relatively long remission initially, which uh, leaves these two uh, strategies open. And a question now for Dr. Gopal from one of our online participants. Um, how does treatment for MCL affect the heart? Well, uh, so, you know, uh, it's an important question. Uh, with any treatment, uh, the uh, side effects are really more relative to the treatment than uh, the actual underlying uh, lymphoma, uh, and it really depends on what agent one uses. So sometimes as part of the initial treatment, uh, we use a drug called adriamycin, uh, uh, it's a, a, a red-colored chemotherapy, and uh, over time, if we give too much of that, or even sometimes in situations when we give just the right amount, there's a small percentage of folks that can have a weakening of the heart muscle. Uh, so that's uh, one uh, known effect. Uh, nevertheless, it's still a very effective uh, component of usually the initial part therapy that we give uh, for uh, mantle cell lymphoma if we're going to use chemotherapy. Um, I suspect maybe your uh, participant is referring to the cardiac effects of uh, drugs like ibrutinib and potentially a calibrutinib, and uh, this was something that we learned uh, after we started using these drugs more frequently is that there does appear to be um, a, a significant rate of atrial fibrillation, which is an uh, abnormal uh, heart rhythm uh, kind of from the top part of the heart. It usually makes the heart go too fast and kind of in an irregular rhythm. In most cases, this is, this is something that can be addressed, and it's actually a common uh, condition in the general population as we all age. Uh, uh, the incidence goes up. But uh, the ibrutinib uh, and potentially with the calibrutinib as well, uh, there are uh, higher rates of atrial fibrillation than we would expect to see if they weren't taking that. So it really gets back to, again, having that discussion and open uh, conversation with your uh, treating uh, uh, provider about trading off the benefit versus the side effect profile of any uh, given approach. And... Um Dr. Kahl, do you want to add anything? Or? No, not really. I, I think uh, Dr. Kopal thoroughly covered it. Excellent. Okay. Um, the question, um, so this question for Dr. Kahl, does the calibrutinib work best on its own without other chemo, such as Revlimid and Velcade? Mm. It's a general question. Yeah, very good question. Uh, so one of the interesting things about acalabrutinib and ibrutinib, the two BTK inhibitors that Dr. Gopal mentioned, they tend to induce what I call kind of shallow remissions. Um, so let me try to explain what I mean by that. Imagine you have a certain amount of lymphoma, and once you go through, say, six months of chemotherapy, you've knocked the lymphoma population down 
from say 100% by, let's say you've knocked it down by 99% and there's just 1% left and you have a nice deep remission uh, that will stay clinically undetectable for a long time. Uh, the BTK inhibitors tend to induce these relatively shallow remissions where they knock the lymphoma down by 40, 50, 60, 70 percent, uh, and then they just kind of maintain it as long as you're taking the medicine, but as soon as you come off the medicine, the disease starts to grow back right away. So one of the real interests right now from a research standpoint is to try to partner acalabrutinib or ibrutinib, these BTK inhibitors, with other agents to see if you can induce deeper, higher quality remissions, which then might allow for um, time-limited therapy, therapy that you could stop, and then the patients could enjoy a treatment-free interval. So there was a good example of this. This was published last year, combining ibrutinib with venetoclax in a small study, and it looked quite potent in combination. That's something that we've been studying along with some other centers at our university as well. Um, but these things have to be done very carefully in the setting of clinical trials. Lenalidomide and ibrutinib have been studied together in combination, and there have been some toxicities, some side effects that have made the combination difficult for patients. So these different combinations will have to be tested individually, these different partners, to, to make sure that a, that two drugs is better than one, and B, that you're not adding in unacceptable side effects. So I, I do see that as a major emphasis in the field for the next two, three, four years is trying to sort out what are the best combinations. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Dr. Kapal? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's really, I don't have a lot to add. I think it, it, in many of these situations, it comes down to the really unknown answer to this philosophical question, or is it better to combine uh, agents all together and try to get a deeper emission, or is it better to use these sequentially, use them in a row. When one stops working, start the other one, because we do know that putting them together probably is going to give more side effects, but you get a better remission. And does that translate into a better long-term outcome? And we really, really don't know that yet. I will just mention, too, that this idea of combining uh, these novel oral targeted agents uh, with standard immunochemotherapy is being tested in the frontline setting, and we're just waiting for the data so there's a big, important study called SHINE that uh, tested ibrutinib uh, in combination with bendamustine and rituximab as initial treatment. And there's an ongoing study testing acalabrutinib with bendamustine and rituximab. And that trial, the second trial I mentioned, should finish accrual later this year. And so the the readout from those trials will be very important for the field to see if adding these novel agents to standard Frontline therapies improves outcomes. Uh, we don't know those answers yet, so we wouldn't we wouldn't do that yet until we had you know strong data telling us that it was a a better way to go. Thank you, um, thank you. And we have another telephone question, Crystal. And our next question comes from Eileen H. Your line is open. Hi, uh, my question is regarding my mom. She's 65 years old and in a complete remission without any signs of minimal residual disease after receiving six cycles of bendamustine and rituximab. And she's trying to decide whether or not to go through with an autologous stem cell transplant. She's worried about long-term quality of life issues. 
What advice would you give in this situation, and is there any reason to believe she might do similarly well without the transplant since she's MRD negative? Thank you, Irene, for that question. That's an important one, and I, I'll ask Dr. Um, Gopal to address it to begin with, and, and well, again, this, I'll address the a, general way. This, <laughs> so this is an extremely important question, and um, there's actually a prospective clinical trial that is trying to address this question, uh, exactly this question. If you're in an MRD-negative uh, state, meaning we can't even detect very low level uh, of mantle cell lymphoma. Now, there are many different ways of doing this MRD detection. Uh, is it better, is it beneficial to do an autologous transplant, or is it just as good to uh, do, say, rituximab maintenance or something like that? And, uh, you know, we, we don't know the answer to this question. Uh, I think, it, and I'd be curious to hear what uh, Dr. Call thinks in this situation, but I think based on the data we have in our hand, uh, I, one would expect that you would pro probably get a longer remission uh, doing autologous transplant followed by rituximab maintenance than just rituximab maintenance. Uh, that said, we actually don't know the answer uh, to this exact question, and it really, again, comes down to um, the trade-off. Autologous transplant, there will be at least a six-month period where there's a lot of uh, uh, busy uh, care and intensive uh, treatment uh, and then the recovery from that. And I usually tell patients that it takes at least six months before you feel like you're getting back to normal after an autologous transplant. So uh, it's really an unknown uh, at this point, um, though I think with the current data, uh, most would think you would get a longer, one would get a longer remission if you did the transplant plus rituximab maintenance versus just rituximab maintenance. Dr. Collins. Yeah, I agree completely with Dr. Gopal's comments. The question that the caller posed is we, do, we, we truly do not know the answer to that precise question. Well, I wish we did. We're going to know it someday because we are running the exact trial that's going to answer that question as we speak. Uh, based, on, based on available data, the data that's in existence, um, we would guess that the stem cell transplant um, with maintenance would produce a longer first remission. Um, but this will come at some cost in terms of side effects. Um, it is possible that um, that being in a, a high-quality remission, an MRD-negative complete remission, um, makes it so that you actually don't need the stem cell transplant, and we won't be recommending that someday, but at the moment we're still recommending it because we don't have the data to tell us it's okay to forego it. I hope I hope that makes sense. Thank you. Wow. Okay. So then we have one uh, um, online question um, uh, for Dr. Gopal. The treatment plan for my 57-year-old brother battling stage 4 MCL is to get him into remission and then do auto stem cell transplant. Would it be better to have allo um, stem cell transplant? And again, this would be something you could just answer in a general way because of the details. Right. So, um, as, as Dr. Call described, uh, there are data suggesting that doing an autologous transplant in 
first remission uh, can certainly extend uh, the remission, the duration of the remission over uh, not doing an autologous transplant, uh, at least if you look at all patients together. An allogeneic transplant, uh, though there are some very small uh, series uh, in case reports of this approach, it really comes with a much higher risk. Um, and in general, if someone has a res good remission after their initial therapy, we are not recommending allogeneic transplant in first remission due to the risk, not only early risk of, of serious complications, uh, but really the long-term quality of life impact from this thing called graft-versus-host disease. So we typically think about allogeneic transplantation uh, as something we relegate uh, for uh, uh, relapse setting. Uh, again, if we can get a good remission after a prior relapse, uh, we uh, think about allotransplant, but typically we don't, uh, certainly not outside of a trial, uh, think about allotransplant in first remission for mantle cell lymphoma. Excellent. Dr. Carl, do you want to add anything? Uh, completely agree. Um, we generally do not recommend allotransplant in first remission. Uh, maybe if someone had a known uh, mutation in their p53 gene where we know the outcomes with autologous stem cell transplant are not very good that would be the only scenario in which we might recommend an allogeneic transplant in first remission but otherwise the the risks appear to outweigh the benefits okay, thank you and we have one last question in front of our phone participants um, uh, crystal thank you our next question comes from Dan H your line is open um, yes, I just had a follow-up question um, related to whether somebody should have a um, stem cell transplant when they're MRD negative. Um, you said that there were ongoing studies. Do you know when those studies will, or trials, when those studies will be done? I'm afraid that answer to that particular study is not going to read out for many years, at least five years. And it could be 10, I'm sorry to say. Um, I, I, I wish I had a different timeline for you. Um, the, the trial needs, um, it needs over 500 patients to answer the question. So, uh, you know, it takes a while to enroll that many patients in a trial, and then it takes several years for the data to mature and give us the answer. And so... Um, I, I, I wish I had. Uh, I wish I could tell you we're going to know this answer next year or the year after that, but I'm afraid that's just not going to be the case. It's going to take a while to get this question answered. Um, and we have one final question. I guess from uh, this question um, for Dr. Um, Gopal: What should NIPI score be, and is and its proliferative rate important? Is uh, rate important? So um, I guess what the, the MIPI score should be, I'm not sure uh, the, exactly what that question is, but uh, we do know that uh, with the MIPI score, we can further refine the uh, the utility, the usefulness of the MIPI score by incorporating uh, the, this KI67 proliferation rate. So it can help sort of move or up, uh, up or down uh, the score. 
um, and give us a little better idea about at least for a population. Again, these are the scores are not all don't can't tell you what's going to happen for any one individual, but at least for a group of individuals with that score, it can uh, further refine our ability to predict. Uh, the long-term outcome. So if the KI-67 is available, we usually incorporate that into the MIPI score uh, when we're first um, meeting a patient, evaluating a patient. Um, it can be helpful. Excellent. Dr. Carl, do you want to add anything? Oh, I totally agree with um, what Dr. Gopal said. It's just one factor of many that we um, factor into the the whole picture to try to estimate prognosis. To be perfectly honest, a lot of times the MIPI score, the KI-67, does not affect the treatment recommendation that we're going to make to an individual patient. There are occasional cases where maybe we're really on the fence of whether to go intensive or non-intensive with a patient, and then the MIPI and the KI-67 might sway us in one direction or the other. But in the majority of cases, it's just information about prognosis in a general way, but it actually won't change the treatment um, recommendation we're going to make to that patient. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You have been phenomenal, that's all I can say, and I want to thank all of our participants. You've asked really such very informative questions, very informed questions, and we hope that you will take the information you've learned back to your treating healthcare team. Um, and um, those of you who've asked questions, that um, you will do that. And those of you who heard information on the call and take that back to your healthcare team so they can, you know, individualize it to you in terms of what your particular situation is. Also, there are some of you who have not yet had a chance to ask questions. So I do want to go over with you um, what you can do to get your questions answered. If you still have medical questions, so there are a number of organizations that actually do um, some of our partner organizations that really do specialize in the treatment of lymphoma. And so um, I would say that I would very much recommend for anyone on the call who still has questions about mental cell lymphoma, Cell Lymphoma um, Research Foundation is a wonderful resource, and you'll be getting information about them um, in the materials that you get from us, their phone number, their website. It's just a, it's a great resource. They have all kinds of booklets and pamphlets, and they also will answer your questions and, and try to direct you. Um, there's, um, but there's a number of organizations out there. Leukemia Lymphoma Society is another. There are just many organizations out there that specialize in blood cancers that I think can really address your questions in the best possible way. Um, and then for any of you who wish to pursue assistance with any practical or financial issues or who wish to talk to one of our oncology social workers, you can simply call Cancer Care. And again, if we don't have the resource for you, we'll connect you to a place that does. So that's, that's important as well. And we don't in any way want to sidestep your healthcare team. So if you're having any concerns or issues, please do discuss it with your physicians who know you. Um, if it's a financial question, a concern about how you're going to pay for your treatment, bring it up with your healthcare team. If it's um, something that you're having a difficult time coping, let them know that as well. So that all these resources are useful to you as well, but also uh, bring it back to your healthcare team. That's really important. Um, I want to thank all of you for being on the call today. You've been a very informed audience. You've asked great questions. Um, and of course, we could go on for a good part of the afternoon, but we did say this would be an hour program. And uh, so most importantly, as we conclude today, uh, we would like to think that we hope that you will feel that you're not alone. I know there are times when you do feel alone, 
but that you do have resources really at your fingertips, both online, on the telephone, and basically take advantage of them. Um, because and, and also to utilize your healthcare team as much as possible as well. Again, I want to thank you for your participation today and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.